absolutely incredible job, and she didn't seem to be in the least bit nervous. Maybe you can run against Bernie Sanders the next time. something was wrong, whether it was in 
the school system or the government or whatever, man, we had some humdingers at the dinner table, and it left a tremendous impression on me. My father, who carried this mail, uh, I didn't learn this until I lost my parents. They were killed by a drunk driver, and, and we had, a, of course, the time for people to come and visit. And there were people that, that lined up outside of that funeral home, and they came in and they talked about John the Mailman. And they said, uh, your dad, your dad did more to care about our problems and did more to help us in any way he could than you'd ever imagine. And of course, that left a profound impact on me as well. So I decided to leave that little town of the Keys Rocks. I was back there last week with NBC because they were doing a story on my hometown and how I grew up. And my 16, 15 and a half twin daughters have visited my hometown. And they call it Daddy's Disappearing Childhood because all the buildings are knocked down where I used to go to school. and. Uh, I left there and I did go to that small little school in the Midwest, uh, boys back here at that table, that I'm not sure you've heard of. It's called Ohio State University, okay? <laughs> and when I enrolled there, I think there were like 48,000 students on that campus. And I was in a dormitory that was 23 floors high. And I had 15 college roommates stuffed into this little quadrant. And, um, Things uh, would get a little difficult, and I became a little bit frustrated. And my Uncle Emil uh, told me, my mother's brother, that Johnny, if you ever want to change anything, start at the top. So I started calling the president of the university's office and trying to get a meeting, and it was difficult to get a meeting, but you know, I learned from my mother and my father, you don't give up, so I just kept calling and calling, and finally badgered them into giving me a meeting. So I went in to see the president of the university, and he was an impressive guy. He had a big office, beautiful furniture, beautiful rugs, and, and I walked in, and uh, I, he said, young man, what's on your mind? And I lodged my complaint, and I said, sir, I've been at Ohio State now about a month, and I'm undecided here at Ohio State, and, uh, but looking at the lady that kept me out, your, your carpeting, your furniture, your chairs, beautiful. Maybe this is the job for me. What exactly do you do? And so he tells me, you know, as a president of university, he's telling me about his fundraising responsibilities, and he tells me about his academic responsibilities, and he tells me that tomorrow I'm going to fly to Washington and I'm going to have a meeting with President Nixon because I'm very well acquainted with him. And I said, well, Dr. Fawcett, um, there are a number of things that I would like to talk to him about also, but I go with you. <laughs> and he said, no. And, uh, but kids, students, it's important. I said, well, if I write a letter, would you give it to the President of the United States? Because I knew that if I handed it to him, he'd hand it to the President, that'd be pretty cool, right? So I, he said, yes, I'll take a letter. So I went back to my dorm, and. I wrote a letter uh, to the president, uh, basically inviting myself for a conversation. And uh, a couple weeks later, I went down to my mailbox, and there was a, uh, a letter from the White House office of the president. And I opened it up, and I went upstairs, and I called home. And my mother answered the phone. I said, Mom, uh, you and Dad are going to have to get me an airline ticket. The president of the United States would like to have a meeting with me in the Oval Office. <laughs> 
And it's a true story. And my mother is shouting, honey, pick up the phone. Something is really wrong with Johnny. <laughs> so they were very skeptical, but they got me an airline ticket. I flew down to Washington. I went to the White House, got through security, and I was sitting right outside the Oval Office. And that little chair and lounge that was there many years ago is still there. And a guy walked up to me and he said, young man, you're going to get five minutes alone with the President of the United States. What do you think? Pretty something, isn't it? I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I got a new jacket, a new shirt, a new tie, and new pants. I ain't coming out in five lousy minutes. I don't care what they So they opened up the door and I walked in and greeted the president. The president greeted me and we sat at his desk and I spent 20 minutes as an 18-year-old first quarter freshman. That's the good news. The bad news is I spent 18 years in Congress and if you add up all the time I spent in the Oval Office, I peaked out at the age of 18. <laughs> and I see this, this colonel, 
I say, hey, you know, how's it going? He said, I want to show you something. So he pulls out this hammer out of his desk. He said, how much do you think this hammer costs? I said, oh, I don't know, $3. This hammer cost me $27,000. That's what I had to pay to the military contractor. And what do you think this screwdriver costs? And I said, you know, $3. He said, oh, no, no, $47,000. This is what it cost me to have to pay to buy this thing. And we went through all these things, and I was like flabbergasted. And I went to Washington, and I met with the head of the investigations committee on the defense committee, and I showed him all this, and after I was showing him all this, and he was a Democrat and conservative, had a late blown off in World War II, always saluted the Pentagon. He has his glasses on, he looks over the desk at me, he says, after looking at all this stuff, which upset his very way of thinking, he said, your mama don't have any more like you at home, does she? <laughs> and um, so I became a defense reformer. You know, we, and it's a critical today because we have about 900,000 people who work in the Pentagon who are bureaucrats. It used to be that we could develop and produce a weapon in about five years, now it takes over 20. What do you think that costs? And, um, was a great experience. I also was involved in reforming the way the services work together and understanding the role of special forces. It was a great experience for 18 years there. And, um, and then six years in, I found myself on the budget committee. And um, I went to my first budget meeting and I thought the Democrats' stuff was really bad and I didn't think the Republicans were much better. So guess what? I went down to Washington after I was complaining and somebody asked, well, what are you going to do about it? I pulled my staff together. I said, I don't like what the, what the president's doing. I happen to be a Republican, and I don't like what the Democrats are doing, so we're going to write our own budget for America. And so my staff says, well, look, there's 100 people at the White House working on a budget and 100 people up on Capitol Hill, and we have six. And I said, well, I know we're overstaffed, but if we stay out of each other's way, we can write a budget for America. Now, the vote on my budget that year was 405 to 30. I had the 30. But I thought I was doing great. I had 29 other people that thought I could run America. Now, I spent 10 years of my life, literally, badgering everybody that I served with in Congress, shaking up the system, because I think that balancing the budget is fundamental values. I was never taught when I was a kid that you should ever spend more than what you take in. I was taught as a kid, you don't want to do that because you got somebody else's thumb on you when you're in debt. And it, I also was taught as a kid, and know it more now with my daughters, we don't have the right to put our children in a debt situation where they got to spend their life paying for our excesses. So, is, do you understand you have to affect everything? Do you know how many people you upset? You upset the farmers. You upset the highwaymen. You upset the senior citizens. You upset the military. You upset the education people. Because as these leaders here, the senator, the, the leader of the, of the House Republicans will tell you, 
There are a million demands, and no one ever comes to you and says, could you just change my program, please? Am I right, Senator? It's always an issue of don't touch me. But you know what? If you're going to be a leader, then you have to lead and you have to be willing to take the heat. Now, I want to explain to all of you that we're all frustrated with what we see in Washington. Right. We say it does not work. Do you know why they don't balance budgets? Because the special interest groups that really represent us make it very hard for people to make hard decisions. Because there aren't many people who go to work on Monday saying, you know, I'd really like to get fired from my job. But that's what politicians think about. I don't want to lose my job. Of course, the only difference between a politician and a person working in business is you should never think that you went into politics to have a whole career as a politician. Your job... time to time 
because to whom much is given, much is expected. So I told my wife, after 10 glorious years in the private sector, that I was gonna run for governor. And she said, that's just great, okay? <laughs> so I ran and I won and beat an incumbent. It was the first time an incumbent had lost in 36 years. And um, I inherited a state with an $8 billion hole. Our, our deficit was almost 20% of our general revenue fund. We had lost 350,000 jobs and our credit was headed down the drain. But I, I didn't worry about it too much because I kind of knew the formula to get it fixed. And it didn't mean we were gonna raise taxes to get it done. Because I think, frankly, pretty simply about things. If I have a restaurant and I don't have any customers, I'm not gonna get customers by raising prices. What I have to do is I have to cut the prices and I have to change the menu and reduce the overhead and shake it up. So after my first year of shaking it up, I was the most unpopular governor in America, okay? That was cool. I didn't spend much time thinking about it. I don't read polls and I don't care what they say. You gotta have a job, go do it. Today, we went from eight billion in the hole to a $2 billion surplus. We've grown the economy by 347,000 private sector jobs. Our credit is rock solid. We've changed the very economy of Ohio and hope has returned to our state. And it was incredible. And those people who are 
developmentally disabled, we want to mainstream them. And there is another group, another group of individuals who live in the shadows. It was reminded to me by a friend of mine just two days ago. They're the people who are 52 years old, and their jobs have been shipped overseas. And they're either underemployed or unemployed and don't know how to support their family. Think about that. You played by the rules, you worked hard, and now you're in a ditch and you don't know how to get out. We owe those people an opportunity to be retrained so they can get on their feet, support their family, and realize their purpose. And we're going to be doing that in this country. We had a little election in Ohio, by the way, and you know, it worked out pretty well. I won 86 out of 88 counties. I won 26% of the African American vote because we believe our minority friends have a right to, to, to be prosperous as well. 60% of women, 51% of union households. I won Cuyahoga County, which the president had won by 40 points, and uh, it was the second largest electoral win in modern Ohio history. I won by over 30 points in Ohio. And normally it takes 30 days to figure out who won Ohio. So it went pretty well. But that was then. So what now? What about the country? What about the dysfunction? Well, first of all, I think that people want a significant reform agenda. Um, and I agree with them. We got in a, you know, we have this thing, American Idol primary going on right now. If you watch it, I guess it's going on TV. It's in the Republican Party, you know, uh, pretty interesting. Um, but I think at the end of it all, people want reform, but they want somebody to enact it, to get it done, to stop the fighting, the divisions. And we're looking right now, right? We're looking right now at a House of Representatives trying to get their act together. And I, I hope they will, and I'm confident that they will at some point. But you know, you can't lead from Congress. You can try. Newton, the team of us that were there in the, in the 90s, we were able to push the president around pretty well. But there's a limit as to how much you can do from the legislative branch. You want to heal the Republican Party in Congress? You want to heal the Republican Party in the country? Elect a Republican president that gets the anxieties of Americans and has a program to bring us together. Now next week, <laughs> next week I'm going to unveil a lot of the things that uh, that Phil talked about. How about starting in a program to end the suffocating regulations that have crushed the ability of people to create jobs? How about making it easier for us not only to stop more regulations, freeze what we have in place, and begin to repeal those things that are hurting our ability to be productive? Because if we don't have economic growth, we don't have anything. It doesn't work. Secondly, how about a program to bring some common sense into our tax code? And I'll tell you what, what I mean by that. 
why do we have the highest corporate taxes in the world? You realize that there's like a trillion dollars that's stuck in Europe because of double taxation. The companies now are building buildings and investing in, in operations in Europe that they would like to invest in America, but because the, the corporate tax rate is so high and the ability of liberals to filibuster against it in the Senate, we have not been able to bring these profits home to be invested in plant and equipment, which gives workers the tools to get higher wages. It has to stop, and we've got to become competitive with our businesses in the world.
You know, I'm for creating a no-fly zone in Syria. I want to be able to protect people who are leaving and let these families be safe. I want to work with the Kurds. I want to work with the, with the Sunnis. I don't want to have Iran and their influence with Shia spread throughout the Middle East. And we have some other people in the Middle East right now. And somebody said to me the other day, well, what if they fly an airplane into a no-fly zone? You know, I come from the Keys Rocks. Don't be flying your plane into my no-fly zone. And I want you to know, when I draw a red line, I don't walk away from it. against this bully Putin. How is it that we could be absent in helping people to defend their own freedom? That has to change. I hope you agree. We should stick with the Ukrainians and help them to send a clear message to this guy. I've got one last thing I want to say to you on all the politics and the philosophy. And I think I heard some of it from Phil and maybe a little bit from Ashley. We got these shootings. We had a shooting, a school shooting in Ohio. I visited there, that school, and was there the next night when all those families poured into a church to hear a couple of messages, including one from the class that had graduated asked me to be the commencement speaker. I mean, you talk about trying to keep it all together. So we know the pain of this. People want to focus on the guns. I think we ought to, I think we ought to enforce all the gun laws, including the laws that force the states to keep a record of those who are mentally ill so the mentally unbalanced don't get their hands on weapons. We have some states that are just not doing it. They need to do it. We need to up our the security in some of our most important areas, including places like the University of Vermont. And uh, we need to be on top of these severe mental health issues. It has to be a priority for us. But I want you to think a little bit about something that I believe is a little deeper. We had a great visit here about two weeks ago from a guy in a white surplus with a little white beanie. He went to Washington. He had more people standing in the mall than some presidents get in an inaugural. He went to the United Nations and they couldn't fit anybody else in the building. He went to Philadelphia and was entertained and, and loved. And he gave us some hope. He gave us a little optimism. He talked to us about grace, because we're all flawed. I'll leave the, I'll leave the room here. Odd. But he said that it's about forgiveness and grace. And like I mentioned to the students earlier, 
about our potential as human beings to live a life bigger than ourselves, to be centers of justice and healing. And folks, what's happening to the American family? The American family is a bulwark, a foundation of America. And it needs to be strengthened. And by the way, what's happened to our neighborhoods and our neighbors? You've got a mom up in Oregon who couldn't control her son. Where was dad? Where were the neighbors? Where were the ministers or the rabbis? Or where were the brothers and the sisters? We can't live a life in isolation and caring only about ourselves and no one else. And the Pope reminded us that we'll be judged on what we do here. I happen to believe in a higher power. I happen to believe in a message of positive actions that we need to take. Love our enemies. I haven't figured that one out yet, but I, I know it's important. Love your neighbor. Treat your neighbor as you would treat your, as you want your neighbor to treat you. Be humble. Live a bigger life. You know, I think if we think about those things, my state, we have a couple programs to try to jumpstart it. We honor volunteers. We have a program that actually takes moms and dads who had sons or daughters who died from drug overdoses who have volunteered their time to go out and heal communities while they heal themselves. We have a program where we're in all the schools mentoring kids. Do you know how it changes a life to have a big shot, which you all are in here, telling a kid what he or she can be? Oh, it changes lives. Now, we need to renew our spirit in this country. And we can't do it when we're fighting one another and fighting everybody else that just doesn't think the way that we do. America that I grew up in, the America I saw that got reborn under a person like Ronald Reagan, was an America where we understood our responsibilities and we performed at a higher level. Yeah, we got elected president. Okay, yeah, I'd like to be president. But that's not going to fix this. What's going to fix this is us in the communities, in the towns in the neighborhoods, at the university. You see, I think the Republican Party has an opportunity to be part of a giant movement, not just to balance budgets and fix all the political things, but to reignite the spirit of America, where we know that what we do, we, each and every one of us, makes a difference. And when we're part of a giant mosaic in our country, we bring strength and unity, and healing, and justice. God bless you, and thank you very much.